Hello, everybody. This is Christian Cison coming to you live from the Kill Room at Lois LLC. This is the Third Fridays podcast. This is the April edition. Uh, last month in March, we had Timothy Kane on as a guest to talk about third department review and essentially how hard it is to get a case overturned by the appellate division which affects when we actually go there and what kind of investment we put forth for cases that have to go there. Uh, so feel free to check that out. Today's going to be a little bit different. Uh, we're going to be talking about cases at the trial or law judge level and specifically about the new virtual hearings. And of course, if we had to have any guests from my firm on for this podcast, it'd have to be Declan Gorley. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me again. I think this is my third time here, so obviously the first two appearances went okay. Sufficient enough for you to invite me back at least. <laughs> right, right. We'll, we'll just assume that's the case. Uh, so virtual hearings, right? Um, we've had some experience, the two of us, in, in, in uh, doing them. Most of the virtual hearing points are upstate. Uh, and that is your territory and your uh, expertise as, as, as it refers to the judges, the practitioners, uh, and the doctors up there. Uh, so that's really why I wanted to uh, come and have you on the show. Uh, so let's, let's talk about virtual hearings uh, in general, right? They started, or, or at least the notice to all um, practitioners before the board, uh, was that it was going to start in November. Uh, November of last year, or essentially the pilot program was going to start. Uh, can you remember back to that date and what you thought about that announcement? Like, did, did it make sense to you? Did it, did it not make sense? Uh, truthfully, back to that date, the first thing I thought was the primary place I was going upstate and they were rolling out first was the Manans hearing point, which is about two hours door-to-door from our office, so four hours round trip. And the first thing I thought was how this benefits me personally. Um, but Not surprised there, but okay. <laughs> so obviously it's a, a huge savings in time for attorneys that are appearing. Even if you're a local attorney, if you're in the Albany area, it still could be uh, half an hour to the hearing point at least from, the, from if you have an office in uh, Albany proper. Um, but obviously the more remote areas of the state, I think that the further you go further upstate, the more remote areas are and the more likely it is going to be at least a 35 uh, to 45 minute commute to and from the hearing point. That's actually a good point. I kind of want to save that for later uh, as far as local practitioners. And uh, we know that claimants are local to their hearing points 99% of the time because the venues are decided based on their residence. Uh, but I want to come back to that because that's been a common uh, complaint about virtual hearings from uh, the people who stay local. Uh, so let's let's come come back to that. Uh, in response to your uh, issue about the travel, uh, obviously that's the main benefit that every everybody thinks of. Um, without having to expend the time to go there and argue cases, um, there's it's a clear benefit, time uh, and expense uh, for us and our clients. I think what people initially worried about was technological difficulties, uh, not being able to connect, uh, and maybe the psychological uh, downgrade or or maybe uh, possibility that if you're not there in person to argue your case and the other party is, you know, are you really making that look like you are 
vigorously defending your client. I know that's something that some of our attorneys uh, thought of when it came out, right? Yeah, I can certainly see how that if you're not there in person that you might think that the judge is more inclined to agree with someone that's in their actual room themselves. But uh, truthfully, from, from practicing now and doing this for, I guess we're doing this for about five months now, right. maybe a little bit longer, I haven't personally seen that to be the case. Um, whenever this was first announced, they were going to enroll it, um, rolling it out in Menands, and then I watched the webinar, and it became clear that they were going to be rolling this out pretty quickly. At first, I think people thought, oh, this maybe will be in certain hearing points six months from now. But the board went full throttle, it seemed like, after only a couple of weeks of it working in Menands, or not working, whatever the case may be, um, <laughs> all of a sudden now it's all over the state. Right. And I, I think that's an important point to bring up because uh, I think judges, especially as they have become more accustomed to the system, they understand that the process can actually help them get through their calendar in a more efficient manner, right? Without having to wait for attorneys that are on different in different parts within the same uh, courthouse, it's not. You're, it's almost like you're not playing a game of tag and trying to bring the attorney back into the room. You have the attorney virtually checked in, and that can actually speed your calendar a lot quicker. I know that's been an issue for, you know, mill firms who assign a hearing attorney to take 20 hearings in a day, but for uh, firms that really focus on the specific defense of one claim and they are all in for that one, I think that it's a, been a huge help and. Let's talk about – I mean let's talk about advantages that we see from that, right? I mean think about uh, your labor market attachment case where the claimant produces work search on the day of the trial. I've specifically argued that I cannot review that and take testimony for, to have him authenticate those records because I'm virtual. So therefore benefits have to be suspended, and that has actually worked. I mean like that is a situation where I feel like the virtual aspect of appearing can benefit our clients. Yeah, because obviously that was the typical thing that claimants uh, or claimant side would do. Uh, you would go to a hearing, whether it be labor market attachment or uh, for a medical evidence issue, and they would roll in with, oh, oh right, bring in the latest medical finding total, right? Right. So we, re- we request a hearing to either suspend or reduce based on no up-to-date medical evidence, and all of a sudden they produce, I don't know, 50, 60 pages showing, oh, I've been to the doctor every day for the past six months, and they never How convenient. It. Or labor market attachment, they're direct to produce work search efforts, and nothing is in the board file for three months leading up to the hearing, and all of a sudden they come into the hearing and they produce this stack of uh, work search that's the size of an encyclopedia and expect you to cross-examine them and really do your due diligence reviewing it. So I think this has basically set it back on kind of a fair ground for us, or at least allows us to, if it's not in the board file at the time of the virtual hearing, uh, in my experience, the judges have not allowed it, and they've basically continued it for a future hearing. And um, in some cases, they've actually gone ahead and suspended it because they didn't produce it in time. Um, but at the very least, it's giving us an opportunity for the records to be produced at that hearing and then having us review it before we then have the opportunity to cross-examine. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's something that we have seen in our experience to make sure that we are able to review those records and using that to our advantage when we can't do that, right? So virtual hearings, they can be good for us. Uh, is there anything about virtual hearings, Declan, that you feel could be improved? Uh me personally, I haven't had any negative issues except for a couple of hearings where, uh, and one actually where the judge was having issues in his part, and I think this was a Binghamton hearing I was appearing on, 
and the judge just up and left his hearing room and went to a different room and didn't, I don't think, think about the consequences of that. Whenever I got called for my case and I dialed in remotely and I'm looking at a computer screen, the room was pitch dark, there's no judge there, and there's no one there. And I'm thinking to myself, what is going on up in Binghamton? And my paralegal called and we realized that the judge had, was having technical difficulties in a room. I think he had a light issue. Um, so he just moved rooms, not thinking how this is going to affect the virtual hearing process. And lo and behold, they're, they're prepared to go without me, thinking I'm not showing up. And they're dialing in the, the, the remotely in, to the virtual hearing. I'm not showing up. It's just that was the one issue where I had so far. Um, I have heard other horror stories, but all these things are so far are, I guess, anecdotal, uh, anecdotal uh, rumors and right, right. horror stories where everyone wants to present. Obviously, if people went into this thinking virtual hearings are going to be terrible, they're going to take the first bad thing that comes and run with it. So, No, that's a good point. Uh, I think that human error, when technology is involved, is always going to play a role in possible uh, problems. And that's always going to be a case, right? Um, but we even see that for in-person hearings, right? Like, for example, uh, if a judge's computer at the hearing room doesn't work, like what – how does that affect the speediness of a trial, and um, how how does that affect how much time we have to make our arguments on the record when the time allowance starts to tick down? I think that human error is always going to be a case, but I do see that judges who have started to do this longer are starting to get the hang of you know like how to do things, when to do things, how long it takes to do them, uh, and it's been a lot better from day one up until now. So, you know, human error might always be something that, you know, the naysayers will champion as far as bringing it back to, you know, your old style in person, uh, you know, fist on the table and pounding it kind of arguments. But it's okay. We can pound the desks in our virtual offices and and show the judge that we're not uh, happy with the decisions that they make. So it's, it's really becoming almost synonymous with uh, what I heard actually in court last week, reality hearings as opposed to virtual hearings because the technology that the state has used to actually put this together is kind of surprisingly impressive. Yeah, so I, I regularly attend Newburgh, which is in the Albany district, the Newburgh Hearing Point or New Windsor, as it's more formally known. And uh, recently I was there in person because the virtual hearing process has not rolled out into Newburgh. It's all kinds of rumors why not, but apparently the building is not equipped technologically. And the judge was uh, appearing from Albany, and I had a video and was showing the video and was admitting into evidence a security camera to show an accident didn't happen on the day it was alleged to have happened. And the judge made a statement that said, because our cameras are so good, I can actually zoom in and look at a scar on a person's face. And he was able to ask very detailed questions about a video that I was showing on a, on a laptop that at first I was very skeptical about how this was going to play out because if the judge is not in the room with the video account, with the, the DVD player, how is he going to be able to see what I'm trying to show? Um, so that just shows how good the, the cameras and the, the video equipment actually is that the board is using. Yeah, and I've heard that a lot too about how you know the, some of the locations aren't equipped. I know in Hopog last summer the air conditioning was out for months at a time, so you know, maybe that's something we want to work on first before implementing the technology into that location. But the work in progress that the state has made to really equip this and uh, kind of make this running, make, make this run smoothly rather, uh, is really impressive. I actually, you know, uh, don't get impressed that easily. Uh, I'm a cynic at heart, but this is actually uh, a nice, nice uh, 
progress uh, or, or really progression from day one until now. So we talked about how it can improve, right? There's always going to be human error. I think the next thing that we could talk about is where we think this is good for employers and carriers and where we think it might not be so good for employers and carriers. Do you have any scenarios or situations where you think this could help our, our clients or hurt them? I think the biggest positive, obviously, we already talked about is time, time so obviously expense. So if you're uh, currently having an attorney that's traveling to a hearing point and now they don't have to leave their, their office, they can just sit in their office and appear virtually, regardless of how long they, how far they live from or how far the office is from the hearing point, they're automatically living that cost that they're obviously passing on in some capacity to the carriers and the employers. So I think co- the benefit, number one, is definitely cost. Right, right. And I guess around that, I could see uh, a problem with it being um, witnesses, right? If we have to produce defense witnesses, whether it be for coverage or compensability, uh, unrelated wage loss, attachment, uh, loss of wage earning capacity, anything in that vein, uh, I worry about whether the witnesses will think that, okay, now I have the technology to do it. Uh, I will appear virtually. And then it's all of a sudden it takes uh, take me to a place where I have to trust their technology, right? And I have to trust their timeliness as opposed to the simple task of, hey, be at this location 30 minutes before this time because and just sit there. Tell me what you're wearing so I can find out where in the, uh, you know, the, uh, the pulpit that you are sitting at and go from there. I, I worry about that. I know we've had some kind of issue, some kind of issue with current cases now where we've gotten approval from clients to attend the hearings in person when they could be virtual for that purpose. But I think if there ever comes to a, a requirement where the technology gets even better and it requires everyone to appear virtual, that could be a problem for us. Yeah, and I, I do think that I, ultimately the end game here for the board seems to be, I mean, at, at this time, virtual hearing is completely uh, voluntary. You can appear. Well, it's mandatory in the, in the fact that you have to actually sign on to the virtual hearing system using right. the software. Virtual check-in is mandatory. Right. So if you go, even if you're physically at the hearing point, which I have done a couple of times for clients that specifically request that we go in person, I still had to go on my laptop and sign in from the hearing point and say, I'm not appearing virtually. I'm appearing physically in person at the hearing point. Otherwise, the judge does not realize you're there and will not call your case or will call a case and not call you. Um, so that's primarily where I've seen that. Right. I, I think that you know that might, that might be a problem. And, and it kind of brings us back to that first point we talked about earlier in the podcast where I wanted to save it for later uh, where you talked about – you know, uh, a complaint that people had was even if they were local, uh, you know, they, they would still uh, necessarily not benefit from the virtual lo- uh, location. And I, I see a lot of that coming from claimants firms that have a wide array of clients. So, for instance, you have your firms that will send the hearing attorney to the location. They might have 20 to 25 cases on their docket, especially if it's a downstate venue. And they might be meeting that claimant for the very first time. So uh, we're talking about a change in uh, policy and infrastructure for them that they might have to figure out if they have to appear virtually. Right now, from what I've seen, a lot of claimants' attorneys still decide to appear locally because obviously they wouldn't be taking on the cases in faraway 
venues that are usually only taking on the cases where they have personnel to send to the actual hearing point. Have you experienced claimants attorneys appearing virtually at all? Um, I think further upstate, it's going to be more common because they probably aren't as high volume. There's a couple, obviously, of the of the firms in the Albany area that are pretty high volume. But I think downstate, when you think of uh, the firms in the city, and not without naming any specific firms, they have 30, 40 attorneys working for them. Um, and they go to a hearing point, and like you said, they have a docket of maybe a case list of 20, maybe plus claimants they're tr- dealing with in one day. Could you imagine uh, their problem in having office space in Manhattan and all of a sudden having to have a waiting room full of claimants waiting for their case to be called and appearing virtually from their office? So I think that that would be fear number one for them. Like I said, upstate, um, I don't think the volume is as significant. And in dealing with uh, a decent amount of case I've dealt with so far, the smaller uh, claimant firms have appeared virtually from their office. And they've had, for the most part, the person has either, the claimant has either appeared uh, by phone, or they've been in the office with them. A couple of times I've even had the situation where the claimant appears at the hearing point, and then the attorney just appears from their office. Um, but that's been much less common than basically both parties being in one place. Yeah, and it, that actually brings me to the, the next section of the, of the, the podcast, uh, is essentially where, where do we see this uh, in one year, right? And we know uh, the the lobbying power of the injured workers bar and uh, essentially the the claimants' attorneys' firms that really pushed for the drastic change from the first original draft of the 2018 SLU guidelines to what we now know it to be at the current day. And if the board were to require appearances be solely virtual, I'm really interested to see how much power this injured workers bar and claimants attorneys firms really have in fighting back to that. Because like you said, the, the, the firms that really have the uh, case population of a wide variety of claimants every day that have hearings Monday through Friday, uh, how, how, how much can they push back on a requirement to appear virtually? Because like you said, the end game is for uh, the efficient use of resources of the state if you can have everybody appear virtually, that creates less security guards they have to employ, that uh, um, uh, requires smaller real estate that they have to rent. All these things that the state can see as cost savings down the road will have to be buttressed against uh, pushback from lobbying efforts. So I'm thinking, you know, is there any anything you see happening with this virtual hearing uh, a year from now? Like, where where are we going to be uh, one year from today? It's really hard to predict. I mean, in my situation, I haven't really had – I haven't – it's been pretty flawless, to be honest with you. I know that some of the downstate hearing points have more volume, and because of that, there's been backups. But I don't – I think that that's been improving as the system's rolled out. Uh, I think the biggest issue and whether this is going to be successful or not um, – and again, I haven't had this happen personally, but like everything else in workers' comp, there's always rumors. And I've heard some significant rumors about issues with the the, the recording system. So basically – there's no longer a court reporter in the room for virtual hearings. Everything is done digitally. So it relies on the law judge saying, we're going on the record, and then apparently he pushes a button, or my understanding is it even happens automatically now when he says we're going on the record. All parties introduce themselves or state their, state their appearance on the record, and then the recording takes place, and then at the end it just switches off or the judge pushes a button. Um, my understanding is, like I said, a judge explained that most of it is done fairly automatically. The, the issue I've been told about and the rumor is that 
in at least a couple of cases, the recording has not taken place or the recording took place and cut out at places or didn't start until midway through the trial. And now the parties are trying to appeal it. And what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to get a digital recording of the, the hearing so that you can either get it transcribed or listen to it and then use it in your appeal to reference what you're trying to appeal. And if there's no record, it's hard to see how they're going to go back. I've heard rumors that the board is going to uh, basically have the trial over again, which is going to be severely prejudicial to both parties, potentially. If there's no more surprise question, if you've already done this, there's no take two and you get to ask the same questions again and get the same response. Or think about a denied case that might be on appeal. That creates an even longer period of time for the claimant to not have benefits. Right. I think it, I don't think it, I don't think it uh, prejudices one side more than the other, to be honest with you. I mean, again, if you've went through it and you've asked all your questions and a good amount of questions that you ask the other party are usually kind of a surprise factor, there's no, more, there's no longer a surprise factor if you've already done this two, three, maybe even six months earlier. They know exactly what's going to come and they can rephrase their answer. If there's no recording of what was said earlier, you can't even argue they're, they're lying now because they've changed their answer. Um, he might have even already watched the surveillance, and then now you're going to take his testimony as to what his activities are. That, yeah, I could, I could definitely see that. Uh, that's, that's definitely a problem. For everybody that doesn't know, uh, when Declan referred to the digital recordings, uh, you might have heard the word DAR. Uh, it's an acronym, D-A-R, for Digital Audio Recordings. Uh, he mentioned that there's no court reporter in the room who's uh, manually typing the record uh, into place. So... DAR is, is certainly a work in progress. I, 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 I would actually agree with uh, anybody who makes a complaint about DAR because it's still in its infant stages, and it's very clear that there has been problems with it. Um, it's a lot different from uh, the security blanket of a human court reporter who you can actually see in the courtroom typing as you speak. So um, I could see that being something that has to be improved before this uh, is taken statewide. And I've actually had court reporters at point blank tell them, like, they go from being court reporters in the hearing room where they're used to basically running the show where they can put their hand up. I've had them basically scream at me to stop and slow down or scream at other people to speak up or stop talking at the same time as each other. And I've had court reporters tell me that listening to the transcription or the audio recording and trying to transcribe it whenever there's a request for minutes, that it is very difficult because... Now you have at least three parties in the room, the judge, the two attorneys, and the well, four parties, the two attorneys, the, the judge, and the claimant. Um, if you have a witness, you could have four people, five people, and multiple people speaking at the same time. Obviously, if they're familiar with the voices, they may be able to determine who's speaking. But um, if there's four people, five people, all speaking at the same time, potentially five people in different locations, it's definitely something where I could see it being a problem. Again, this is this could be all just one person tell me about one terrible case. But if this becomes a across the board common issue, uh, not just with the issues of hearing what pe- parties are saying, but also uh, either files being destroyed or not properly recording, this could be where the system has its, has its biggest flaw. Right, right. There could be an, uh, a clear breakdown there. I mean, just last week uh, I was on a case with uh, about 12 carriers on a coverage case. Uh, so – Imagine trying to pick out the, the difference in voice intonation uh, and ascribing that to a p- particular person. You would almost have to require each participant to say who they are before they talk every single time. So 
I don't know, where, where do we go from that? I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe video now has to be required. So you see the person talking as they're talking in order to make the recording. It's, it's definitely one of the easier complaints that pe- people can make as far as bringing this back to the old school in-person hearings. But we'll see how the board works out. I think they've done a nice job so far. Uh, it kind of brings me to uh, guess the outcome here. Well, we usually play guess the outcome given appellate division or board panel case and ask the guests to figure out what the ruling court did. Uh, for this one, I'm just going to ask you a multiple-choice question, Declan. How many of the board's hearing points have virtual hearing capability? Is it A, 10, B, 15, C, 20, or D, 25? I believe it's 15. And you are correct. Continuing the streak. I must admit, though, last night before we did this, I took a quick look at the board uh, board webpage. If, you, if you're interested on the board webpage, on the right-hand side, there's a link that says Virtual Hearings Pilot Program. It goes into detail about what sh- – actually, last night was the first time where I saw it specifically list each hearing point that virtual hearings are now available in. Before, it was kind of a guessing game, but last night I saw that there was a very detailed list of each specific district – which hearing points in each district were currently uh, virtual. So I have to uh, – I'm not – How modest of you. <laughs> how, how uh, you know, just – I think everybody uh, to a certain extent prepares for coming on to uh, the podcast knowing that I'm hosting it. But how, how nice of you to admit that you want to prepare uh, for coming on the show. Uh, so that's great. 15 is the correct answer. Uh, there are 25 total hearing points in the state of New York, 15 of them – have virtual hearing capability. And just very quickly, I'll list the 15. They are Albany, Hudson, Plattsburgh, Poughkeepsie, Saranac, Binghamton, Elmira, Norwich, Brooklyn, Staten Island, Rochester, Batavia, Syracuse, Utica, and Watertown. We can see that aside from really Brooklyn and, you know, maybe some of the uh, some of those upstate hearing points or maybe Staten Island, the pilot program is really being rolled out for the hearing points that have less volume. And I think that's a great idea. Test it out uh, in situations where if there are breakdowns, it's a lot easier to fix when there aren't you know, a massive crowd of claimants and attorneys waiting to get their cases called. Um, but we do have some news about another fairly uh, you know, populous hearing point getting uh, the virtual hearing capability. Uh, what hearing point is getting that, Declan? That would be White Plains. White Plains. So White Plains is always a funny thing to me. It, it, it's part of the Brooklyn district. Uh, you know, I don't know how they, Makes they, no sense. they've <laughs> connected those two. Um, but, you know, by technical terms of the board, White Plains is part of the Brooklyn district, as is New City, which is also weird. But that would be the third hearing point in the Brooklyn district that would get uh, the virtual hearing capability. And that is suspect. Ex- Expected to roll out on May 14th, so you know, three, about three weeks from now. At 12.30 in the afternoon. So strangely, they didn't wait till the next day, but they <laughs> said right. we're not available in the morning, but we're going to start as of the afternoon on May 14th. Is it maybe because some judges don't come until <laughs> 9.05? Maybe. <laughs> I might get in trouble for that, but that's okay. Um, 12.30 p.m., They'll probably start with the afternoon hearings in that rollout, but eventually those hearings will uh, be flushed to the morning as well. It's not official on the board website yet, but uh, as New City, 
uses the primarily the same judges as new uh, as white, white plains. plains. Right. It's my understanding that the judges, and this again, this is rumor that New City is going to be briefly following White Plains, so probably in June. And it sounds like the judges will be appearing in White Plains, and the video there will be a video in the New City hearing point where claimants can appear with their attorneys, or everyone can appear virtually. But basically, there will no longer be a sitting judge in New City. They will be appearing in White Plains. And for everybody that wants to see how it would really work, the board has scheduled webinars. That's right, Declan. Other people do webinars except for us, right? But webinars on, the, on May 9th, 10th, and 11th, those webinars will start at 12 p.m. You can register on the board website. If anyone can't find the link, please email me, and I'll send it to you directly. You can see the technology and how it works and the instructions that practitioners and witnesses have to follow for that purpose. And I'm only specifically bringing it up for uh, the adjusters that have a lot of coverage cases uh, on their on their plate because sometimes we have to bring an underwriter in to testify to the meaning of a particular provision in an insurance policy. And a lot of times the underwriting department of an insurance company may not necessarily be in New York. Hell, we only have we have clients outside of New York, right? So we have to imagine that the underwriting companies will also be in New York are out of New York as well. Uh, if those people are typically disposed as witnesses, uh, I should say deposed, not disposed, but essentially come back to testify, they can take these trainings and make sure that they are up to date with what is required of them as a witness and how you check in virtually. Uh, so that, that's really all we have, right? Um, I want to thank you, Declan, for coming on today. Any, any last thoughts about virtual hearings? Uh, I just want to pass along. I did mention it earlier. My favorite virtual hearing so far was uh, a case that was up in Elmira, New York, which I've never been to Elmira, New York. It's up by Binghamton. I'm sure it's beautiful. <laughs> beautiful, remote, and probably three hours from our office or more. But the judge was sitting in Binghamton because Elmira is in the Binghamton district. The attorney for the claimant was sitting in the Elmira hearing point. I was in my Paramus, New Jersey office, and the claimant was in her home in Pennsylvania. So we had four different parties in three different states. And I thought it was interesting that just in this day and age where you got an attorney in New Jersey, an attorney sitting in uh, Elmira, New York, a judge sitting in Binghamton, and a claimant sitting in, I think it was Troy, Pennsylvania. And, it, and they all appeared virtually? All appeared virtually, and it went without any flaws. You know, I, I don't do this really ever, but I'm, I'm going to give credit to that claimant for appearing virtually. That's, that's really cool of him or her to really uh, help facilitate the process. Uh, always in favor of new technology speeding things up and, and allowing us to find new solutions to old problems. That's been my thing. Defend from day one, but from virtual hearings, defend from November Right, We know that they're in progress now. We know the benefits and the disadvantages for them. Uh, so let's really work together and make sure that we have a good action plan going forward. So uh, my thanks to Declan Gorley for appearing on today's show. This is Christian Cisan reminding you to defend from day one.